0: How's everyone doing? Great. Everyone doing good? I hope so. I hope you're doing well. Just shout out to people online. If you're watching, put down those Cheerios. Stand up and, and give the Lord a shout of praise. Amen. I hope someone at home in their living room is like putting down their Cheerios. And Woo! if you're doing that right now, you're my best friend. Okay. I just want to say that. So, oh, man. I would, I would love to find out someday that some person I don't know somewhere out on the internet just put down their Cheerios and was a little frightened, just a little bit, <laughs> right? Um, so, hey, did you know that Texas, You pro- I mean, you probably all know this, okay? I didn't know this till moving here, but Texas has had seven of its own constitutions and, and eight constitutions if you include... Mexi- the, the Mexican Constitution of 1824. Okay? So I'm going to read to you some of these constitutions. Like, as you said, the Mexican Constitution of 1824, um, the Constitution of Coahuila. Okay, now listen, I, I had my computer, I-, I know that's terrible. I know it's probably offensive, and I, I-, I know that. I'm sorry. I couldn't do any better. And listen, I had my computer. I like selected it and had my computer say it, and the robot was worse. <laughs> so w- Mac or computer softwares make English um, spe- dictation and speaking in computers better so that it doesn't butcher languages and that I don't have to do it too, so I'll have help beforehand so that I can pronounce this. Who, what Does anyone know? How do you pronounce it? Well, we like. Really? <laughs> C- C-O-A... That well we well cool well that that sounds way better, Sylvester. Thank you for helping me. I'm I'm genuinely sorry. Genuinely sorry. Um, anyways, the Texas Constitution of 1836, the Texas Constitution of 1845, U.S. annexes Texas. Woo, go USA! Right, uh, and te- all the Texans are secretly like, no, we're we're still our own country, right? Um, but. The Texas Constitution of 1861. Texas secedes from uh, the Union. Ooh, shame, shame. Shame, shame, I know your name. Uh, Texas Constitution, uh, Did I, already, I said 1866? No, 1866, 1869, and 1876. So that's a lot of Texas constitutions. Make up your mind, Texas. I mean, come on. But each time... Each time the Constitution changed, it transformed what it meant to be a Texan in one way or another. And again, maybe there's some genuine Texans out there who are like, no, being a, t- a Texan is one thing. That never changed. We're Texans, right? Uh, and sure, great. Good for you. I'm not from Texas. So I, I, you know, I, I sympathize a little because you know the Alamo is really cool. It's a cool story and interesting history. But anyways... Um, it does. It transforms what it means to be a Texan in some way. You know, first uh, tech, a Texan is a part of Mexico, then a Texan is a part of a state in Mexico, and then its own country, and then a part of America, and then not a part of America, and then America again, and then so on and so forth, right? When we read Galatians, we see that there is a sort of new constitution, that it's come, and it affects um, what it means to be a person in this community, right? This is an imperfect metaphor. It's really, honestly, it's very imperfect. As I was making it, or as I was thinking of it, I kind of felt like um, uh, Mr. Portokalos in, in My Big Frat Greek Wedding, who's like trying to connect every word to a Greek word, and he's, he's always like, so there you go, right? Like, and it's like, well, that doesn't connect at all. That, that's kind of how I feel, but stick with me. In Jesus... When we're in jesus and we're marked by the spirit the galatians and us are part of god's new age and this change means something or it meant something in regards to the galatians identity and this is where paul's argument goes okay we're we're in galatians we've been following his argument so far and we find Paul's continuation of his argument in chapter five. So if you want to go ahead and turn to me with me to chapter five, but f- before we jump in, we're going to do a little pl- plurim- preliminary <laughs> work here. Um, there is a common reading of Galatian that wants Galatians, that wants to reconstruct the situation of Galatians in such a way um, as to view Paul as addressing two groups, okay? One is the legalistic agitators. We've talked about this. These are the people who've come in and said, hey, Gentiles, you need to be circumcised, right? You're not the people of God unless you're circumcised. You're not the people of God unless you have these identity markers. Um, And then some have supposed that the other group are what's called an antinomian group. This means that they're a group that believes their actions don't matter for one reason or another, right? It's maybe some people might call it today like hyper grace or something like that. Like it's like. Hey, we're saved by grace. I don't got to do anything, right? Like that's full stop. And you know, that's not right, But this reconstruction, it really doesn't hold up when you take a close look at Paul's argument. I'm going to tell you what I mean. But closely related to this reconstruction is a common view um, that the letter, uh, oh sorry, the latter half of Galatians is an ethical exhortation or instruction right? It's ethical exhortation or instruction. And it's separate from the main theological argument in the first part of the letter. So now it's true that here in five and six, we definitely have ethical exhortation, um, but it's untrue that this is a hard break in Paul's overall argument, okay? This is not separate from the good theological bit. Now, okay, I guess Paul is just going to give us the the stuff we got to do, right? right? Just because, you know, why not, right? No, that's not that's not the case for Paul. Ethics, or we could say moral actions, right, are theological, meaning they're related to God. Okay, this argument of Paul's is very much connected to the first half of this letter. Paul argues. And this is uh, an overview of his argument. Paul argues against the false gospel that the Galatians have accepted or are beginning to accept, which is to say that the Gentile believers needed to observe Torah or needed to observe the law or become physically Jewish in order to be the true people of God. He argues that his gospel, it comes from Christ, not from man. And that the Galatians are justified by faith in Christ. They are heirs to the promise of Abraham, adopted as children of God, and they're marked by the Spirit, not circumcision. And it's within this argument, a continuation of what he's already said, that Paul can say in verse 16 of chapter 5, Live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit this section is certainly not disconnected from the rest of Galatians. Life in the Spirit is the mark of God's new covenant people. One commentator said, rightly so, that if you think Paul is, is uh, it doesn't like works, you haven't read Paul. Right? Like if you think th- the point of Galatians is that it doesn't matter what you do when you haven't read Galatians. Paul continues his argument to say life in the spirit is, the, is, is the, the logical end to what we've talked about thus far. And so let's look at how Paul continues his argument in chapter five in four parts. Four parts, okay? Number one freedom to be slaves in love. This is 13 through 15. Number two, living by the spirit as opposed to the flesh, 16 through 18, works of the flesh, 19 through 21, and by contrast, the fruit of the spirit, which is 22 through 26. This is what it says in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. In verse 16, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, uh, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I warned you before, those Who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. So just to, just to clarify, that was from the NRSV, so it's going to be a little bit different than a lot of your translations. A lot of people I know use the NIV and KJV, but this is the NRSV. It's going to be a little bit different. I chose it because it, it's a little bit um, more literal, of a translation right and there's a few things that i wanted to be brought out as we read um the 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 virtue and vice lists which is the list of you know the works of the the uh, the flesh and then the, the fruits of the spirit um in the works of the flesh i wanted to highlight that licentious licentiousness uh, means debauchery right and it's very very close closely related to the the two previously um and then um uh, Carousing, which is a new word to me, uh, means like partying, right? It's uh, it's like uh, ooh, ooh, I think some tra- translations say orgies, which is yeah. So it's in the Bible. <laughs> so I was like I don't know. What to... Anyways, but just to give you an idea, it's kind of uh, you know like um, philandering. Maybe we could say I don't know. Is that is that a good word? Anyways, let's move on. But the first point that we're going to look at um, freedom to be slaves in love. Okay, so it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of sounds like Jesus, right? Um, If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. All right. All right. So Paul has come to play, okay? As usual, this is a message that we have and it's one that it's it's like like one of those horse-sized pills, you know? It's not it's not easy to take, you know what I'm saying? But this section um, it will connect the previous section speaking of faith working through love, like in 5 uh, five verse 6, and the freedom of Christ as illustrated by Isaac and Ishmael and Sarah and Hagar. And I know Pastor Sid covered this section last week, but it's a bridge between the section that Pastor Sid covered and the section that we're covering today. <clears throat> so it's useful to kind of highlight um, the, the, what it means today, right? So Paul, he uses military Language to call the Galatians to not allow their freedom to be um, a, a base of operations, so to speak. and in, in the NRSV, it's translated opportunity for the flesh, which in NRSV it, it says, and we're going to come back to what that means. Um, but for now, it's important that we understand that he says, instead of your freedom, um, or instead of you use your freedom um, to take up slavery in love. Slavery in love. Don't use it as a base of operations for the flesh. Don't use it to indulge yourself, but use it as, um, or take up slavery in love. Now, slavery in love, that should be a song, okay? Someone needs to get a hold of like Beyonce or someone who's in the music business. Honestly, I don't even know what they would do with this, but it should be a song, Slavery in Love. I can hear it now. Slavery in love or something like that. You know, obviously, maybe it would be a little less beautiful than that because, geez, not everyone can, has the vocal ability that I have. Um, but, yes, it should be a song. So this is such a radical statement, right? This is such a radical statement. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. In the the famous Christ hymn, in which Jesus doesn't consider divinity as something to grasp or cling to. Instead, he empties himself, taking on the very nature of a slave. He humbles himself even to the point of dying on the cross, A, a horrible death, a humiliating death, meant for traitors, meant for terrorists. God became man and did that, right? That's our model. How radical is this love? This is not a Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan kind of love, okay? Love them. Love the movie, Sleepless in Seattle. They're probably in other movies too. Uh, Got mail, right? Isn't that that's them too? Doesn't matter. Moving on. This is not a Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan kind of love. It's not a mystical feeling. It's not mushy, ushy, gushy. This is love that is visible in self-sacrifice, in slavery. Now, again, this is very, very radical because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're far removed from slavery as an institution of the first century, We're not far removed from slavery as an institution in our own history, but we're far removed from slavery in the Greco-Roman world. And it's the, I mean, much like uh, slavery in our history, a slave is the lowest of the low. It's the lowest rung on the social ladder. And, And we're becoming this in love with Jesus as our model. That's love. You want to know why you have issues in your relationships? Do you want to know why 50% of marriages end in divorce? Because we're not defining love by the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and I'm talking to the church. Those stats are the same. Or I, I think I may have heard at one point higher in the church. And, 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 I'm not, and I'm not talking to people, I'm not picking on people who have, who have uh, you know, gone through that, the pain of divorce. I'm talking to everybody because we've all defined love wrong. We've all displayed love in a wrong way. Whether you've had a successful marriage or not, if you are not self-sacrificially loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a part of the problem. I'm there. I'm there with you this is so radical, but just as radically, radical as slavery and love, again, should be a song, is the connection to the preceding argument by mention of the law. Okay? He, he mentions the law, right? He says it's all summed up in this one, this one commandment. And it's a noticeably positive view. Of the law. Now, when we read Galatians, it's easy to read the law as being a negative thing. Matter of fact, we kind of want Paul to say, law bad, Jesus good. But, but Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say it in Romans. He doesn't say it here. That's not his argument. Uh, it would be kind of neat. It would be kind of nice for us. It would be easier to kind of grasp, particularly after 2,000 years of Christianity. But Paul doesn't say that. Instead, he makes the better argument that the law was necessary to bring about the promise of Abraham, the promise of restoration, through the ultimate climax of God's good grace, which is Jesus. The law was necessary. He says in chapter 3, it held all things together under sin, right? Right? It, it brings us to Christ. It leads us to Christ. He talks about it as a tutor, given until the appointed time when, when Christ would come, right? The law is a good thing. The law, the law is part of God's ultimate plan for redemption. And this law, through Christ, is summed up in one commandment. And again, it's very similar to Jesus Think about Matthew twenty-two and Luke chapter ten. Luke chapter ten is one of my favorite passages. I'll be honest; I think I've referenced it. Um, I think I've referenced it in like all of my sermons here so far, and that's okay because Luke chapter ten is awesome. Um, Jesus, um, well, what happens is a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, "Hey, how, you know, what do you, what do you make about the law?" And Jesus says, "Well, what do you, you know, what, what do you think?" And he's like, "Love, the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself." And Jesus is like, "Yeah, that's right." And he's like who's my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself, he's like, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, he subverts the question with the parable of the good Samaritan. See, he, he reveals that the teacher of the law, he doesn't truly love his neighbor because in his self-righteous ways of fulfilling this law, of fulfilling the law of loving his neighbor, he hasn't made room for loving the Samaritans. See, the Jewish people saw Samaritans as religious traitors. They're those people up in Assyria that God sent, or sorry, the, in, in northern Israel, that God sent Assyria, and Assyria wiped them out, and they adopted Assyrian gods, and they they mixed and mingled, and, and now they're this, this you know, th- that's, that's not the people of God. Judah, we're the remnant, right? They're the traitors. And Jesus said, Who's neighborly in this story? Right. And this the teacher of the law, he won't even say the Samaritan. He's the one who took care of him. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like you can imagine. He turns his question on its head. I love it. I love it. I wish I could do that, honestly. But Jesus, you know, he is God incarnate, so I can't be that. Um, But here's here's a question I wanted to raise. And it's just something that came on my mind. It's an interesting application to talk about, particularly in light of chapter three of Galatians. In pandemic, in natural disaster, in an economic uh, turmoil, recession, do we see these things as the punishment of God? Do we see these things as the punishment of God? I, I, I think a lot of people... And I've had conversations about this, about not necessarily people in this church taking this view, but saying, hey, this is a view, and we've had conversations. But people will say, this is the punishment of God because of this group, because of that group, because we elected that president, or because yada, yada, yada. And I want to look at this in three parts, okay? And this is important because I think this is an application that maybe doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Number one... Covenant and curses, the covenant, the covenantal curses in chapter three, we covered it actually last time I preached. It says Jesus became a curse on our behalf. He took on that curse. We could talk about the covenantal curses also as covenantal consequences. We see this in the story of Israel. We see this set up in Deuteronomy through blessings and curses in which God says, hey, keep the covenant. If you don't, this happens. The curses are a good thing. It's a a means by which God is keeping His his people faithful to his covenant, faithful to the covenant relationship that he graciously sets up. But Israel is not faithful to the covenant and so we see in the prophets we see how they're not faithful we see how they're unjust to the poor to the immigrant to the downtrodden we see how they're idolatrous and we see how their worship is meaningless because it's just stuff but it's not filled with mercy and justice and and the prophets are like hey we're the covenant watchdogs we're the covenant lawyers keep the covenant keep the covenant and they don't and the curses happen right Babylonian comes in, Assyria comes in, Persia comes in, then Rome comes in, right? Or oh, the Greeks and then Rome. But Jesus, he took that curse upon himself, becoming the curse, right? So the curses are eradicated. Those good curses that called us to, faithful, uh, to covenant faithfulness are replaced because Jesus fulfilled the law. And in him, we are called to covenant faithfulness. Amen. So we don't have to worry about the curses of God. Number two, if we were faithful to reading the curses of God and reading the prophets, we would see that overwhelmingly the curses and the, this, the, um, the punishment of God is on his own people for not being faithful to the covenant, not on outsiders. And so if we would read that, we would turn the spotlight on ourselves. And we would say, oh, the principle, again, the principle. We're not talking about actual, you know, curses like in Israel's history. Jesus he took care of that. But the principle says, God is calling me as a part of his people to covenant faithfulness. And now here, in, in to the Galatians, Paul says that new covenant um, um it's fulfilled by loving your neighbor. You see, blaming disasters and certain things on people groups is a lot like scarily close to hating Samaritans. They, weren't, they, didn't, they didn't do what's right. God's punishing us because of them. That sounds a lot like Jewish people and their relationship with the Samaritans of Jesus' day. And what does Jesus say about that? Love your neighbor. And Paul's saying it too. Man, That's I love it. I love it. But in, in verse 15, Paul, he keys us into this, this um, main thrust of the argument as he contends for the unity within the church. Unity within the church. Man, I, I've been into church my whole life. Not a long life, but it will be someday, Hopefully. Um, and I don't expect to see a whole lot less fighting than I've already seen, and I've seen a lot in the church. Man, we need to get this. We need to, we need to understand the importance of fulfilling the whole law in loving your neighbor. Amen. I know I've spent a lot of time in here. We've got to go. Uh, living by the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. This is the second point. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desire is opposed to the Spirit and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Paul sets up this duality that we've seen before in in, in chapter 3, verse 3, a duality between Spirit and flesh, or Spirit... And law. We see that in, in verse 18, right? Spirit and flesh or spirit and law. Um, this is a contrast between the age of the spirit, meaning God's new age of restoration, began by Jesus and marked by his spirit at work in us, and the age of the flesh, meaning the sinful, present, evil age. And again, before he's argued, what are you doing? You want to you be complete by means of the flesh when you started by the Spirit? That doesn't make sense. Jesus already rescued you from this present evil age. Why do you want to go back? Yes. Doesn't make sense. Now listen, we, we need to understand this. This is not a contrast between a, a, a flesh, meaning the physical body, or the spirit meaning the disembodied self, okay? That's not what—that's not what's here. For one, only a few of the works of the flesh, as we're about to read, are bodily desires, and all of the fruits of the spirit are, are, are carried out physically within a community. So this isn't talking about my carnal body, earthly self, physical, the spiritual's good, that's Platonism, right? That's Plato, and then later... Gnostic thinking, right? That's not that's not Christianity. Um, Paul is calling whole people in this world, in this life, as physical whole people, to live by the Spirit. Paul doesn't have these really, really se- as, as separate categories for like the spiritual and the physical, like we do. He do- he's not like okay, well. You know, I feel good today, that's spiritual, but I went to the doctor tomorrow and got medicine, that's physical. He's not making these distinctions all the time. He's saying spirit life is spirit life as whole people, right? He's calling whole people to live as those who are in Christ and therefore justified by faith, adopted as children, and marked by the Spirit. And this has transformed who the Galatians are. This has transformed who we are, Radiant Life Church. It means something for our identity, like the Texas Constitution. Again, going back to that poor analogy. (laughs) But now we get practical. We get practical. So this is the third. Works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, or debauchery. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity or, or hostility, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, I think I'm saying that right and things like these I'm warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say that I didn't I just want to make it clear. I didn't say that Paul Paul said it I'm, I'm throwing Paul under the bus on that one, right? But this is a vice list, um, and then later we'll see a, ver- a virtue list, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Vice lists were common in the Greco-Roman society of Paul's day, and they were used commonly by ethical teachers. Okay, so Paul's virtue and vice lists are both similar and different from other lists. Um, virtue and vice lists often um, were not exhaustive, and they usually had one main point, right? And it would be... Uh, it would be A mistake to go vice by vice, virtue by virtue, making a big deal out about each individually, and I'll tell you why here in a second. But this is generally true of his virtue and vice list here, too. Okay, now look at this. He has three sexual vices, two religious vices, eight social vices, eight, and three drinking or, like, partying vices, okay? And in the context of, this, of, of the social concerns in, in verse 15 and 26, and considering most of the vices have to do with social concerns, it seems clear to me that Paul is making a point about unity here. Unity. Love your neighbor by living, not by living by the flesh, but living by the spirit. Living by the flesh leads to discord, right? Right? But here's what we tend to do. And considering Paul's argument, we're probably not that far off from the Galatians. This is what we tend to do. We get what I call the spirit of Charlie Brown and the Peanuts. Okay, this is how we read it. We read, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, and sorcery. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. I'm warning you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see the problem? Do you see the problem? When we look at these individually, we tend to emphasize the things that we're okay getting mad about. But the things that we have a, we have a struggle with, the things where our blinders are keeping us from seeing our issues, our, our participation in the kind of vices that Paul is listing, we... It's just, it's, it goes, right? That's a problem. We are called to unity. We are called to love our neighbor sacrificially. Our brothers and sisters in this room, we're called to love sacrificially. That means when Pastor Sid comes to me and says, hey, man, you stink in general <laughs> at preaching and smelly you're smelly and I say Pastor Sid that hurts my feelings I'm not gonna get mad because I love Pastor Sid and Pastor Sid of course is never gonna say anything like that because he loves me sacrificially I'm not gonna be offended and I'm not gonna offend we're called to unity that's the Spirit's way discord Fighting, that's the fleshly way. And by the way, it's held up equal to idolatry, sorcery, sexual immorality, drunkenness. All things that, especially as Pentecostals, we're ready to stomp. I'm going to stomp you, devil, right? I mean, we say that. I don't know. I don't think we should say that. But we say that, and we're, we're ready to go to war about these things, right? But we need to remember the middle part, and especially considering that this is Paul's main focus, right? We would be we would be doubly wrong to ignore that, right? But he says, you know, these things these people people do these things they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a description of a future hope reality. Paul argues. Not that if you do these things, you lose your salvation. Rather, that this is not what the kingdom looks like. This is not what the kingdom looks like. If you're kingdom people, you don't look like this. And if you are in Christ, you are part of God's kingdom as spirit people. And it doesn't look like that. It looks like unity. The the fourth point, by contrast, the fruit of the spirit, says in, in 22, By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. If the team would come. Now, this part about the law not condemning, uh, or the law um, right at the end of the, the fruits of the spirits, there is no law against such things. The law doesn't condemn those in the spirit, the law doesn't condemn those. In the Spirit again, Paul's overall argument about the law is that it's it's this good thing. It finds its culmination, it finds its 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 climax, so to speak, in Christ. And those who are in Christ live by the Spirit, fulfilling the law by loving one's neighbor. Jesus rescued us from this present evil age. He brings us into. New creation, and that's what this sounds like. Christ Jesus, belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh, it says, with its passions and desires. We've, We've crucified the flesh in Christ. We're in this new age. We're rescued from the present evil one. This is getting at new creation, which in chapter 6, Paul is going to say, circumcision is nothing. Um, uncircumcision is nothing. What counts, what matters is new creation. Just like he said, similarly at the beginning of this chapter, that circumcision, uncircumcision has no power, but that faith at work in love counts. There's a parallel there. There's a sense in the, in, the Holy, in the gifts of the Spirit, in the fruit of the Spirit, in living by the Spirit as opposed to living by the flesh that says living in new creation through Christ, transformed means loving your neighbor. Means being peaceful, patient, kind, generous, faithful. And again, just like the vice list, this is not exhaustive. It's not meant to be, do these things and you'll be saved. No, that's, that, that's works-based righteousness. If that's what you're worried about. We're not, we're not arguing for that. We're arguing that Paul is saying, hey, you're brought into God's people. So live by the Spirit. That's what it, your Spirit people, live by the Spirit. The Spirit is essential for the Christian life. The day-to-day life, we have to cultivate the Christ-like fruits that mark us as God's people. Life in the Spirit as God's people is saturated with the Christian, with the Christ-like fruits. We could say it that way. It's saturated with the Christ-like fruits. And it's practically lived out in community. Important is that. Thank you,
1: Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. This analogy Paul keeps going with it in the next chapter, and we look at it next week. He's talking about fruit, and then he says, "What you sow, you will reap also." So we sow in the spirit. I mean, we cultivate. I like the word he used. You get what you feed. When I mean, you sow enmity and bitterness and everything else, guess what's going to come out? It's the same exact thing. But when you sow in love and joy and peace, that's what comes. And God promises the abundance in that. But I like He captured the overall idea of this passage, which is not a list. Please, that's so easy for us to go down a list and say we don't do this or we do this and therefore we're great. It's not. The whole idea is captured in this idea of unity and loving your neighbor. And the only way you can do that is by sacrificing. A self-sacrificing love. That's all that really counts at the end of the day. It's I give my life for you. You give your life for me. And not just caught up in our... Because everything, the the whole idea of the flesh is it is us-centered. Life in Christ is Christ-centered. Life in the Spirit is other-centered. That's where he's getting at with this passage. Don't love yourself, love your neighbor, because that's the fulfillment of the law. I know in this this world, they talk about, you know, you just got to love yourself a little more. It's not about that at all. It's about loving Christ and loving others. That's the